Thank you for joining us for this very special time. Uh, just as a reminder that I am starting today a study of the book of Philippians. Now, when we analyze any culture of any kind, we can start by contrasting two different kinds of cultures. One would be an honor culture and the other would be a dignity culture. And the best way to explain this is by imagining you've been criticized or you've been attacked by someone. And in an honor culture, your number one priority is to defend your honor and to respond with honor in how you're being attacked. And in an honor culture based culture, your response is normally public so that others can see it, so your honor is protected and defended. On the other hand, in a dignity based culture, you see the intrinsic worth in which each individual has. When you're attacked or criticized, you respond in private. And you may say something publicly, but you most likely will reach out to the individual. You will sit down in a room with them. You will sort things out. You will try to come to some kind of consensus and understanding. And you come out of the room and say to everybody that the whole thing's been settled. We're in agreement now. And you settle things in private. Now, in the last few decades, we've shifted to what sociologists call a victim culture. In a victim culture, I evaluate you and culture from the perspective of a victim. Everybody is a victim. In other words, everything that I do and say is motivated by love. But everything that you do or say, if you dare attack me or criticize me, can only be explained through hate. So therefore, you must be racist or xenophobic or homophobic or whatever other phobia that we might accuse one of. In a victim culture, we isolate ourselves into little groups that are uh, united by our sense of victimhood. To join that little group, you have to advocate their complaint more militantly and more vocally uh, than they do. And you must never disagree or you're thrown out of the group for hate. And under the victim culture, there's no path forward to reconciliation. The offense is never forgotten. It will always be a taint in your character and your personality. Now, Karl Marx introduced the idea of the victim culture when he talked that the society is divided into opposing classes that are in constant conflict with each other. The privileged and wealthy bourgeoisie owns the means of production while a second group, the proletariat, do the work that produces their wealth. And in recent years that dichotomy between uh, the oppressor and the op oppressed has taken the form of what we call identity politics. And whether it be race, or women's rights, or sexual orientation, or gender identity, or even a more personal level of abusive husbands and whatever it is, it seems that everyone is a victim in some way or another. Groups like the Franklin School of Thought out of Columbia University and men like Saul Alinsky have brought the idea of the victim culture to a whole new level in more recent years. We even see it in our entertainment. And I brought some of that up last week, but let me go back to that. In 1986, Christopher Reeve, as Superman, had one weakness, and only one weakness only, that was kryptonite, a metal that could kill him. Otherwise, he was perfect in every way. Now, more recently, a remake of Superman, a movie called The Man of Steel, starts with him on a boat. He was out at sea all alone. He had a lost feeling culturally and lonely and orphaned. He's unable to answer the fundamental question about who he is and his, his identity. And he's trying to cope with the weight of expectations on his shoulder. He felt orphaned. In other words, the new Superman starts with a victim narrative. 
with such a narrative, the adversary is demonized. So when they obliterate the villain, the adversary, we celebrate their demise. We go, yeah, that was the right thing to do. And the destruction is fully justified because that person, that villain, that oppressor has brought hurt and pain to people. And therefore, I can do whatever I want in response. And that's the problem of the victim culture. It becomes our identity and demands justice, even in the most brutal form. And from this perspective, anything the victim does is justified to appease his sense of injustice. Stalin and Hitler, historical figures, both claimed to be victims. That became their motivation for their actions. They persuaded millions of people that they too were victims of an international capitalist conspiracy or a Jewish conspiracy. And no major act of war or mass killing in the last 20th century began with the aggressors or perpetrators first claiming innocence and victimhood. That's what motivated some of the greatest crises of history is the claim to be victims. The problem with tallying up victim counts is this. How can we compare and weigh suffering as if an impartial scale exists of what fairness should look like? Where does it stop? It seems at some level we're all victims. So how can we ever reconcile if we reduce everything to the sum total of our grievances? All we can say with any accuracy is that we and millions more over the millennia were actual victims. The victim often has a legitimate grievance, but somewhere along the way, he must stop letting it define him or her and shaping his or her every thought that it ceases to be the obsession and the definition of, of my personhood. Somewhere along the way, we must let go of our grievance. And the victim mentality is a major obstacle to peace and reconciliation. It is an oppressive, abusive context. The, the Apostle Paul wrote the book, of Philippians. The book is called a prison epistle because he wrote it from a Roman prison that he'd been sent to unjustly for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. The book gives us an insight as to why Paul was able to rise above the circumstances and praise God in spite of all that he endured. Paul was the consummate victim, but as he said in Romans chapter 8, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. In other words, he did not identify himself and perceived himself as a victim, but as a conqueror for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today I want to introduce a new sermon series on the book of Philippians. I want us to get into the mind of Paul, and I want us to learn from him how to be content no matter what the circumstances might be. And the only way we can find a path of healing in a victim culture is to gain a new perspective like that shared by Paul. Even as Paul opens the book, we see his heart. So, let's give three responses to today's question. And that is, how did Paul approach the persecuted Philippian church? And the first thing we want to note is this, is that he addressed them positively as partners in a shared mission, not as victims. As we read this book, we have to be reminded, as it's been written, that Paul is in a brutal Roman prison, and he was there because of false accusations. That's the story of Paul's life. He would go to share the gospel in a new area, and he would face constant oppression. In fact, he describes it in this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 to 29. He says this, 
Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers and dangers from bandits and dangers from my fellow Jews in danger from Gentiles and danger in the city and danger in the country and danger at sea and danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides, everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak? I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin? I do not inwardly burn. And that means he doesn't burn with anger and hatred and resentment. You see, the reality of his severe persecution did not catch Paul by surprise. He had been one of those people had himself at one point persecuted Christians and even would put them to death. Christians who would share their faith. He was, it was on the road to Damascus that's talked about in Acts chapter 9 where God stopped him in his tracks and he called Paul out and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And after the encounter, Paul was blinded and he had an encounter with God and accepted that this was from God himself. He acknowledged his sin and it began for him a traumatic turnaround. He later met with a man the Lord had he, uh, led him to and used him to tell Paul this. And Acts as it gives the accounts is this. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man Paul is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. It is in that setting that Paul writes to this church of Philippi. And he says this, and he opens the book this way. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus and Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons. Grace and peace to you from God and our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I think my God, every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with you with joy because of your partnership with the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who has begun a good work in you will carry it unto completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Let's note several things from that passage. First thing I want to notice this is that Paul acknowledged them as saints in a holy calling. The Philippian church was one of Paul's early church plants, and many converted within the city. And Paul calls them saints, which simply means holy ones. And he saw in them a positive light and gave them a hopeful message. These people, also due to their faith, endured persecution, as we learn in Acts chapter 16, that is, coincides with the writing of this book. And because of their faith in Jesus, they received God's grace and are declared to be holy and just by God. But we also learn from this that he thinks very fondly of them. And one of the results of salvation by faith is that we become children of God. And with it comes our special respect of almost a, a united unity that comes out of that. And as their spiritual mentor and father, so to speak, Paul has a special fondness for them, much like a proud parent who sees their child grow. But he also he recognized that God is continuing to do a good work in them. The same God who saved them the same God who started to work in their lives and in their church is promising them 
that he is going to continue to work in them. And they were called to the same mission as that of Paul. They did not see themselves as victims. That was not the mindset. But they saw themselves as comrades in a shared mission and has only begun and is only going to continue. Notice that Paul did not focus his message on their victim status. He did not see them that way. He saw them as God's work in progress. Now, some of you older people, maybe my age, remember a man named Bill Gothard, and he used to have an institution or seminars, and when you went to the seminar, he would get a little badge and had the letters PB, PG, INF, YMY. And, of course, the people would see that and go, well, what's that for? What's that stand for? And you then explain to them, it means this, please be patient. God is not finished with me yet. That's what Paul's saying here. God's still at work, and he's going to continue it. That's Paul's point. We're all in the process of being conformed to the image of Jesus. God will continue to do his work in us. Every person is a project that God is working on. God does not give up on us. We're not victims. We are works in progress. We have a mission that rises above our circumstances. It is a mission that may face persecution and adversity, but we do not go about with a sense of defeat but with the assurance that God is at work in us. Now there's a second response to a question, how did Paul reproach the persecuted Philippian church? And it's this, he addressed them as partners in God's grace. Notice what he says in verses 7 to 8. He says, it is right for me to feel this way about you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Notice this. This shared grace is justification for his fondness of them. The church of Philippi was not simply a project for Paul. It was not simply a conquest for Paul. He cared for them because of the grace that they shared together. Grace means that we are treated far better than we deserve. It means that we are given salvation as a free gift. We do not earn our relationship with God, but it motivates us to love and to serve God. It unites us and gives us something real and meaningful to share in common. Secondly, we will note from this is that this shared grace is God's basis for preferring Paul's positive attitude. It is because of grace that we've been made right before God. Paul will speak to this later in the book, but he says that we were made God's children because Jesus took the guilt and penalty for our sin when he died for us on the cross. And as Romans 5.12 tells us, For God demonstrates his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now Paul is not oblivious to their faults. In fact, he will address some of them later. But he also realizes that they too face a difficult task of being faithful servants of Jesus in a very hostile world. And he treats them as beloved fellow servants, not as powerless victims. And this mindset is dramatically different than the victim culture that we face today. Here's how the victim cult is defined. Any person or group focused on the past over the present at the expense of the future, whose imagined or real victimization dominates their vision and their interactions with others who pathologically obsess over others whom they believe responsible for their condition or that of their ancestors. In short, think of victims 
as perennial stalkers running to and fro, looking ravishlessly for someone to blame. Sometimes they were even in charge of nations, their leaders. On the mild side, one can charge former victims of overstating cause and effect links of exaggerated or false claims or dredging up tragedies for monetary or political gain. Or they simply do not know their history. Depending on the example, one or more charges might stick. The victim asserts explosive like misfortune for all. It's damaging. For example, the Hutus of Rwanda pre-1994 are just one example. And if you remember, the Hutus justified their mass genocide of a million Tutsis based on some historic past offenses. In their minds, they were justified for the genocide that occurred. There's others like Joseph Stalin, or Mao Zedong, or Fidel Castro, or Pol Pot. They blamed their society's economic troubles on capitalists rather than their own economic incompetence and tyranny. Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat's self-pitying murderous career was premised on the partial reality of some Palestinians, the displacement of 1948. But his repeated rejection of opportunities for peace harmed Palestinians more than any Israel uh, politician ever could because he could not let go of his belief that they were victims and the only solution was the annihilation of the people of Israel. The point is this, Paul and Jesus and the Philippian church had every reason to share an victim mentality, the one that is popularized today. And yet it was Jesus while hanging on the cross with the most brutal, unjust form of death possible. He was hanging on the cross and he was able to give the very people who put them there when he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. There is a third response to our question. How did Paul approach the persecuted Christian church? And it's this. He addressed them as partners in a shared purpose. They shared something together. Notice verses 9 to 11. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness, that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Notice he identifies three things that he or prays for them regarding three things. He prays that they will grow in love. A person who's, who, whose love, he says, will abound more and more, who's not filled with hatred of people. He's not motivated by a victim mentality, but by the love for the very people that are oppressing him. And this can only happen when we realize our own sin and that we are saved only by grace and not by works. Growing in love and living out a victim mentality are inconsistent with each other. They can't live together. Growing in love means that we're not driven by fear, as in 1 John 4:18 says, perfect love casts out fear. We can live rewarding and positive life regardless of the circumstances and regardless of how others treat us. He also prays that they will grow in discernment. Discernment means that we distinguish what is good and what is best. We make wise judgments about what is good. It enables us to make clear-headed decisions at crucial moments and even at difficult times. 
We do not become paralyzed by hatred, by doubt, and indecision. He also prays that they will grow in righteousness. And this is a person who knows that they have been declared righteous in Christ, who wants us to grow to become more and more like him. It's a person whose faith means more than just going to church on Sunday. They're involved in a day-to-day relationship with Jesus that permeates every area of their life. And it goes beyond the externals and makes them good from the inside and transforms from the inside and enables them to live out their lives in integrity. You see, one of the great tragedies of the victim mentality is that it causes one to demonize people and even whole groups, not growing in love, but to demonize. They become in the victim's mind subhuman. Every deed and motive is interpreted through this dark filter that they have. Instead of growing in love and discernment and righteousness, they grow in hatred and distorted thinking and in vengeance. And remember this, that anger and blame hurt only the people who harbor it. The only way that we can find a path in healing in a victim culture is to gain a new perspective. And that's what the book of Philippians will teach us what that perspective is. We see in it Paul's heart. We see his love and we see his fondness for the suffering church who shared God's grace with them. He did not treat them as victims, but as people of God who God is working in to make them become more and more like Christ. You see, we live in a victim culture in which we evaluate everything from the perspective of a victim and in which everything I do and say is motivated by love, but everything that you do and say if you dare attack or criticize me, can only be explained through hate. So therefore, you must be whatever label you want to give. In a victim culture, we isolate ourselves into little groups that are united by our sense of victimhood. And the more traits, the victim traits you have, the greater status that you have in that kind of a culture. Let me give you some things to reflect on as we wind this down. Sometimes life is hard. Sometimes events are hard and sometimes people treat us badly and unfairly and if we were perfect we could very well be crucified because remember Jesus the perfect person the perfect God man he was crucified people will be unfair cruel and mean it does not mean we cower in fear it does not mean we respond in hate we respond like Paul who rose above it another thing to note is that we will learn that God's kingdom is upside down the way to up is down The way to be great is to be the servant of all. The way to be exalted in God's kingdom is to be humble. You see, in the vocabulary of the world, the word down is reserved for cowards and losers and outcasts. It's certainly not a word that is desired or pursued. We want greatness and prestige and power to be cherished. We want to move up, not down. And yet, through this downward journey, that God will take us and begin to exalt us. And the Philippians will speak to that. God wants to exalt you and give you greatness, but on his terms. Greatness in his kingdom is servanthood. God's terms is that you lose so that you may gain. He makes a hard request, but then he gives a great promise. On the foothills of the Alatu mountain range in northern Kyrgyzstan, there's a spot that looks up to the peaks of the towering celestial mountains and across the valley in the city of Bishkek. They have built there a great monument, complex in honor uh, in the uh, honor of the Kurzic people, in the name of Ata Bayet. But there is something different about this place. 
Most monuments of such a grand scale are built to commemorate some national victories or some great achievements. But this place, however, was built specifically as a monument to a magnificent defeat. Specifically, there are three heartbreaking defeats that the Kurzak people remember together on that scenic hill. In the defeat of 1916, when the Tsar Nicholas II decreed that all Kurzak men will be conscripted into the Russian army to fight in First World War, and on that mountaintop, some 100,000 people died, either massacred by soldiers or lost in the brutal winter. The second monument on that hill remembers 1918. With the personal instruction of Joseph Stalin, 137 leading citizens, writers, teachers, artists, and politicians were rounded up and led up those hills to be murdered. The third monument represents 2010, when 84 young people were lost on a single day, murdered for protesting against yet another brutal regime standing in the way of freedom. There's nothing but tears on that mountain. But the Kurzak people believe these must forever be remembered for they are magnificent defeats. Despite the oppression of their worst enemies and the tears of those most painful tragedies, the Kurzak people have not only persevered, but they're today a proud and a thriving people. Sometimes there are defeats so magnificent they simply must be memorialized. And every Christian understands this. You see, on the foothills, just outside of another great city, there's another site remembered with tears and a monument to unthinkable injustice. And while it would be impossible to remember that place without being moved by its terrible tragedy, remember it because of something so magnificent in that tragedy. On that terrible hill, by his wounds we are healed. On that terrible hill, through the cross, we are saved. On that terrible hill, death may have won the day, but life everlasting secured an unbreakable victory. Some people might ask why I go to such trouble to memorialize a mount of such great painful sorrow. We would say that some defeats are worth remembering precisely because they contrast the magnificence of the final victory that overcame the evil of that place. The Kursik people have a mountain and his name is Atabayek. But the people of God have a mountain. Its name is Calvary. And it's on Calvary where the victim becomes the victor, where we win.